Welcome to The Republican Professor. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Craig Blomberg. Thanks for being here, Craig. Thank you for having me. Now, um, it's been a long time since I've seen you. <laughs> um, and I've heard through the grapevine that you have retired. Um, but then I've heard that it seems like it's been a busy retirement. I'm trying to give a new definition to that acronym RHINO, retired in name only. Wow. Well, uh, we brought you on to talk about the historical reliability of the Gospels, and I would just like to share a brief anecdote, because I was going through this book, uh, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. This is from the 1980s. And those who are listening only uh, cannot see what I'm holding up. It's uh, the 1987, I believe, edition of the mm -hmm. Historical Reliability of the Gospels by Craig Blomberg. And um, that book came on my radar originally because I was reading this book. Um, my background is interrupting, but uh, the... There it is. Jesus Under Fire. And this is from the 90s, which, which was after the book I just held up. And it's edited by uh, Michael Wilkins and J.P. Moreland. And you have a chapter in here. Um, I think you're, it's the first chapter. And you titled it, or someone did, Where Do We Start Studying Jesus? Chapter 1. Mm -hmm. And I read that while I was deployed in the Navy. Wow. And that's the first time I heard your name. When I got back from that trip, I, uh, well, actually, I don't know if it's the first time I heard your name, but I read this book, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And I read that uh, while I was an undergrad. And you are interviewed in there. At least one of the chapters, maybe two. The first two, yeah. The first two chapters, and that was a really powerful for me back then. And then I uh, looked for your book in the in the library. I couldn't find it in the library. Someone had checked it out. So I looked for it in the bookstore, and uh, I came across historical reliability of the Gospels. And I poked around in it and uh, decided... Maybe I need more training because uh, some of it was quite technical for me. But um, so then I became your student at Denver Seminary and took your courses there and then had a great time. And um, okay, wrote so that's, a thesis that involved one of the Gospels, as I recall. That's right. Yeah. Gospel Luke. of Luke. Mm -hmm. I still have your all the books. I don't give, get rid of books. Uh, this is the book, Jesus and the Gospels. And uh, you can't see the title because I have a bunch of sticky notes on it from the, the notes that I wrote, but that was back when uh, I was underlining in pen, if you can believe that. Um, not smart. I've since switched to pencil. <laughs> you live and learn. Um and uh, Craig, I still have as a bookmarker a little pamphlet for the Biblical Studies program at Denver Seminary. <laughs> <How about that? laughs> 
Yeah, it's kind of fun to see that an old pamphlet. Um, but uh, I um, I uh, wanted to get like a real live New Testament scholar on this podcast, and so that people could get exposed to what uh, biblical scholarship is like, um, what the training involves, um, what kind of courses you teach and what's involved in that. And then, you know, the topic is very important, the historical reliability topic. So um, where would you start with your story about how you got interested in being a New Testament scholar? I began college having grown up in a family of public school teachers and having always had math as my favorite subject, thinking that I wanted to be a high school math teacher. I had three required courses as part of the core at uh, this liberal arts college, um, historically related to one of the mainline Protestant churches, um, had three required religion courses, and I quickly learned, taking one my freshman year and one my sophomore year, that the approach to scripture and the approach to the gospels in particular was far more skeptical than anything I had encountered either in uh, the church I grew up in, which was a part of that denomination, uh, or in uh, my experience with parachurch movement, with campus life in uh, high school and with Campus Crusade for Christ in college. And um, the more I studied and the more I looked at what our library had and local bookstores back in the day when there were such things. And <laughs> yeah. I discovered that I was getting one uh, very liberal and pretty skewed uh, approach to uh, biblical scholarship. And when I discovered uh, different perspectives, um, and brought them to the attention of my professors. Um, almost like a mantra, hmm. I kept hearing, well, no serious scholar believes that. Um, uh. And eventually I got to the point where I simply couldn't accept that claim and began toying with the idea of... Uh, going into this discipline uh, in order not to just do the same one-sided thing on uh, the conservative side, but to, to really expose people to all different perspectives. And like lots of youngsters who <laughs> dream of going back to one of their alma maters and teaching, I thought, well, I could come back to this college and, and do a better job, uh, of course, they would never have had me and never did when I was applying. Hmm. But uh, that really got me thinking about 
maybe there's something of more eternal significance for me to be uh, teaching people than high school math. Wow. Can I d dig into a little bit of what you said? You used the word liberal and conservative. Um, what do you mean by those terms in this context? In this context, uh, it largely had to do with um, to what extent did uh, a particular scholar believe that the events in Scripture, um, we can focus just on Jesus to make it simpler, okay. the events in the Gospels, mm -hmm. um, the things that the Gospel writers say Jesus taught and did, um, that he really taught and did those things, as opposed to them being uh, the creation either of some anonymous person in the first generation of Christianity or the gospel writers themselves. Um, and so uh, I suppose uh, in those days, uh, uh, nobody was uh, creating the statistics that they did when the Jesus Seminar in the 1990s voted on every saying and teaching of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would I would estimate that maybe about uh, 30 to 40 percent of what Jesus taught in the synoptic Gospels, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, uh, would have been accepted uh, on average. Um, by very the, little out of the Gospel of John, though, by the liberal. Correct. By the liberal. OK. Yeah, we use the same terms in politics, so I have to be and clear. It doesn't always mean the same thing. It doesn't mean the same thing. Um, so why do you think that they wouldn't have you uh, when you applied? Um, <laughs> do you have any, I mean, you obviously maybe Probably didn't. Probably for the same reason that uh, the school I've taught at for uh, the last 37 years wouldn't have one of them. Um <laughs> <laughs> Colleges, universities, seminaries, with rare exceptions, um, have a profile uh, in religion, religious studies, biblical studies, that is not just uh, about uh, the credentials. They want um, their employees, their professors to have, but there are parameters. Um, you mentioned mm -hmm. politics in this case. Uh, theology, but I'm sure the mm. point remains the same, that there may be some diversity that is tolerated, but there there are boundaries beyond which uh, you, you will not go if you want to be hired, and if hired, if you want to stay in good standing. Um, what are called confessional schools, mm -hmm. those that actually have a, a statement of faith, like many um, Christian colleges and, and seminaries uh, do the uh, weeding out, if you like, by whether someone can affirm and perhaps even sign a statement of faith or not. Um, yep. In other contexts, there, there are no such statements, but it's sort of an unwritten and un, sometimes unspoken. Um, 
but generally understood uh, bounded set. Uh, mm-hmm. The closer you are to the middle, the better. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, that's true in many disciplines, especially in the humanities, uh, in universities and colleges. Every mm-hmm. once in a while, you come across a, a breath of fresh air, a place that's deliberately courting a greater amount of diversity. Uh, but that has not happened at, at my alma mater that I'm speaking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're talking about your undergraduate. That's right. Yeah, your undergraduate. So you mentioned uh, no serious scholar. That was the attitude. No serious scholar. So you thought, okay, I want to be a serious scholar. And how did you come about figuring out what that means, how to become a serious scholar and what that entailed? Well, one uh, book that I found in our college library's basement that created a bit of a breakthrough for me was uh, a book um, that had just been published in the 1970s, uh, and uh, that's when I was in college, by a 40-something comparatively new Scottish professor in the faraway corners of northeast Scotland at the University of Aberdeen, uh, whose name was I. Howard Marshall. Uh, The I stood for Ian, but he went by his middle name, Howard. And it was called Luke, Historian and Theologian. And the uh, title I remember remember that book. Captured uh, my interest immediately because over and over and over again, and I could say over a few more times without exaggerating, (laughs) uh, I heard, um, well, the reason we don't accept this statement or this event or this part of this story in the Gospels is because it's so theological. Uh, therefore, it's not historical. Uh, and I could not get uh, a good answer when I asked, why could it not be both? Um, and suddenly, here was a university professor, fully credentialed, who was very much a serious scholar, um, He was interacting with more German than uh, British or American authors, and he obviously could read German, which was a big thing for for my professors as well. And he was making a convincing case that uh, something could be both at the same time. Uh, And I was thoroughly convinced. I had no idea that about five years after I discovered that book, I would have the privilege of studying with him for my doctorate. <laughs> How long did that take for your PhD? Um, I was fortunate enough uh, to be one of those rare people. Uh, people always joke and say, I, I crammed a two-year degree into five years or something like that. <laughs> um, I actually did a three-year degree in three years, but because I was able to be full-time, um, and uh, worked diligently and uh, apparently figured a few things out correctly. So from the fall of 1979 to the summer of 1982, uh, my brand new wife, we were married three weeks before we left the country, uh, and I had the privilege of becoming adopted Scots. 
did you go to you went to seminary before that right did you have a master's degree trinity uh evangelical divinity school in deerfield illinois had a master's in new testament just before okay. that that's right so, so you'd had some greek and you had oh yes uh some hebrew yes and had learned a few things about hermeneutics maybe <laughs> absolutely uh, did you study with anybody that would be well known there at Trinity? Uh, uh -huh. Probably the uh, the best known person. It was it was interesting. Um, there were no less than three professors in the New Testament department who were quite new when I came. Hmm. Um, one and the one who became best known was Don Carson, uh, who is now one of the. Uh, in retirement, he is still one of the uh, co-directors uh, of the Gospel uh, Coalition, along with Tim Keller, and um, a man who is still teaching, though he was he is now has been for some time at Wheaton College. Uh, Doug Moo has become quite well known, and then a man who unfortunately retired and is with the Lord. He only lived to be about seventy-six. Uh, Grant Osborne, uh, who in fact was the hermeneutical guru at that time, his book, The Hermeneutical Spiral, uh, that came out a uh, few years after my wife and I were there, uh, was the uh, expansion of his um, hundred plus pages of typed notes that he would distribute to us and use as a guide for his lectures. Wow. And that was on the days of the manual typewriter. <laughs> yes. Wow. Amazing. When you got to Aberdeen, um, what what was your typical schedule like when you were working on your doctorate? I've told people over the years, um, you have to be self-disciplined. You have to be... Um, passionate about what you're doing because no one is going to force feed you a schedule. Um, as soon as we were settled into our apartment and uh, had a chance to make an appointment to see Professor Marshall, um, did so. and He gave about an hour of his time very generously. We had corresponded previously he had suggested I do some reading based on what I was interested in. We talked about that a little bit, and uh, we began to narrow down my topic a little bit further. And then uh, his expression, which I remember because it was not a, a term I had ever heard before. He said, read around <laughs> this area a little bit. And come back in a month and tell me what you're thinking. Wow. That was my guidance for my first four weeks of doctoral research. Um, and of course, uh, the internet hadn't been invented yet. So mm -hmm. you spent your time in a library uh, with yeah. reference works and um, read voraciously and took notes voraciously. And I, took all kinds of notes on things that I never used, turned out to be utterly irrelevant, but I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> and uh, with pen and paper too, right? Later and we began to uh, 
formulate to things a little better. Now, I should add that there was um, every other week, uh, fortnightly, as the British like to say, a uh, PhD seminar for all the New Testament students and the professors. So uh, I would have had at least one, probably two of those by the time I went to see uh, Professor Marshall again. And they were all afternoon gatherings where students were either discussing prescribed readings or perhaps the more advanced students making presentations of what they had been researching. Every now and then, one of the profs or a visiting prof would make a presentation that would lead to a considerable discussion afterward. Um, so I started to meet people and get integrated uh, into uh, the department, but uh, there's a lot of freedom. And unfortunately, uh, I met at least two men in my three years there who came over and had no clue how to cope with that kind of freedom. And in each instance, they spent two years and then went back home with nothing to show for their time. That's tragic. What was uh, Marshall like as a person? Wonderful man, razor sharp thinker. Did not tolerate somebody who couldn't speak clearly um, and succinctly. He would interrupt you and paraphrase what you were trying to ask if you couldn't ask it in a simple sentence. <laughs> um, but once he saw you were serious about what you were doing, um, incredibly helpful. Um, perhaps more so than anyone else I have ever met. And wow, he, that's a high compliment. Ab, well, no, that was the beginning of a new sentence. Um, <laughs> okay. Perhaps more so than anybody else I've ever met, comma. He <laughs> uh, absolutely insisted that you understand and be able to represent the perspectives of those who disagreed with yours in um, language that if they were present, they would say, and agree you have understood and represented my position well, and you are qualified now to interact with it. And wow. He did that in his own work. And uh, I remember one time when uh, there was talk, it didn't materialize the way uh, it had originally been advertised, but there was talk that Harvard Divinity School was going to endow a chair of evangelical studies. And several of us uh, who were from the States were, were marveling at this and, and thinking how good it was. And uh, several of us were Trinity grads uh, as well. And with just the slightest twinkle in his eye, Marshall said, yes. And when will Trinity Evangelical Divinity School endow a chair of liberal theological studies and put the screw in and twist it? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, uh, there, 
there's this book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus <laughs> by Albert Schweitzer. I'm holding it up if you can't yes. see this because you're on audio, but you'll see it on YouTube. If YouTube doesn't take this video down, um, <laughs> this uh, we have had censorship on YouTube for oh dear uh, for quite silly things. I think um, actually, I think they lie about why they take it down. But um, the uh, the 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 thrust of this book and was seemed to be that. Uh, we we really can't get at the the real Jesus. Is that now when you're in your scholarship, you think that we can, and I think I know that when I studied with you, the big takeaway for me, well, one of the big takeaways. <laughs> there's lots, but I took five courses from you, so I I I took a lot away from that experience, but the 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 idea that uh, a passage could be theological and historical at the same time there's no contradiction in that makes total sense to me and i can't remember ever thinking any other way and i come across uh things sometimes where it seems like there's this disconnect where people can't make that connection and, and there's just this assumption that's never challenged. Um, the whole idea that the gospels are historical documents. Now I just take that for granted, but I had to work quite a bit to get there and you were a huge part of that. Um, ha have, has your, what is your thinking on that? If you can articulate it, Sure. Um, and and has your thinking changed or developed over time since you wrote that historical reliability? The, uh, the Quest for the Historical Jesus was a, a monumental book uh, that's hard to summarize uh, succinctly, but mm -hmm. many people have phrased it as uh, a survey of primarily 19th century German study showed that more often than not, uh, scholars tried to recreate Jesus in their own image. Mm -hmm. uh, and Schweitzer himself um, certainly believed that uh, there were things about Jesus that were knowable, but they were things that involved him being a prophet announcing the end of the world and the inbreaking of the kingdom in ways that did not fit um, contemporary Jewish expectations and that, in fact, did not come to pass. Um, and so... Uh, set historical Jesus research uh, in a variety of ways in very different directions. Um, but it's certainly true that uh, before and after Schweitzer, uh, there are plenty of people who have uh, uh, had this dichotomy that we've been talking about uh, 
one of the analogies that was helpful for me, I'm sure Marshall himself used it, but many others did uh, back in the 70s and ever since, um, is uh, the period immediately after World War II, when the Jewish community was still reeling from the Holocaust. Um, the Jewish historians who very painstakingly and meticulously compiled as much information as they could about the atrocities of uh, the Nazis against their own people very much had a, a theological or we might say an ideological agenda behind what they were doing that uh, they did not want their people ever to have to suffer like this again or any other people group have to go through such a, a genocide and it was for that very reason that they in most instances worked as hard as possible to be as accurate as possible because if they were caught out fabricating or exaggerating things then that did their own cause no service at all um, and I think the analogy to the first Christians when they were not a movement with any power base, when they were trying to convince um, people who lived in a world that understood already back then you didn't come alive in bodily fashion after your corpse was put in the ground, uh, that they were worshiping a resurrected Jesus. And. Um, that despite all of the ways that Jesus took um, and fulfilled various Old Testament prophecies, there were others that he didn't and said, uh, in essence, that'll come later. And there were some that he interpreted in new and creative ways. Um, so much inertia to overcome that if they were caught out simply fabricating details about what Jesus said and did during his his life in Israel, um, that would have been uh, an unnecessary and perhaps uh, completely self-defeating obstacle. Um, now, having said that, we don't want to deny that um, theology or ideology can ever distort things. Um, Marshall himself in a book called I Believe in the Historical Jesus, going back all the way to 1977, used the example in the days of the Soviet Union that uh, there was the one line entry in the giant Soviet world encyclopedia on Jesus Christ. And it said the mythological founder of Christianity. And so certainly ideology can, can skew history, but it doesn't have to. And of course, one of the ironies, uh, probably from at least uh, 1990 to 2014, is that uh, you are more likely to get that definition in certain American universities than anywhere in the Russian Federation uh, after the fall of the Iron Curtain. True.
it it is it is odd to me that that was that that's true what you just said about the american universities do you have any theory about why that is i am i am How do you not uh, a conspiracy theorist <laughs> in general um but it's interesting one of my colleagues who teaches old testament um and grew up in Germany and was educated in England, was a Methodist pastor and then an academic in England, um, but has stayed in touch with the, the German scene, talks about uh, one of the reasons that the most recent generation of um, college and university teachers in Germany, at least in areas of religion, uh, political science, uh, humanities, has been so ideologically liberal is because the time of the Red Brigade and all of the uh, upheaval in the late 60s, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, there was a generation of socialist or communist thinkers <coughs> excuse me, who said, let's go into education because we can transform the mindset of a country through higher education. Um, until comparatively recently, biblical studies in this country has been very indebted to Germany. Um, in many universities, in at least the humanities, certainly less so in the hard sciences, um, but certainly in religious studies, there is um, a uniformity of thinking that just uh, does not have as its goal to give students a, representing, a representative sampling of <clears throat> excuse me, all the major perspectives, all the major scholarly perspectives on a topic, but to direct them in um, one prescribed uh, set of convictions that matches the department, that matches the university. Um, every now and then I have uh, pleasantly discovered that that's not the case. I was amazed and surprised mm -hmm. that uh, I believe it's Iowa State University where a man by the name of Hector Avalos has taught New Testament for years um, has to be on the spectrum about as far left as you can get without mm -hmm. falling off the edge of the world if there is such a thing. Um, incredibly hostile in some of his writings. He he once uh, said something to the effect of the only justification for biblical studies <clears throat> being taught in a university is to help students see how dangerous the Bible is so that none of them will follow it any longer. But people change over the course of a, a lifetime. And 
I had a student of his who came in recent years to Denver Seminary and said he had a course from Hector where uh, they had to choose uh, among uh, readers, uh, readings from a reading list, and uh, it went across the spectrum, and one of my books was one of the options for what students could read. Uh, and uh, that he was intentionally trying to expose students to a variety of perspectives, uh, including the conservative evangelical one. So it can happen, but it's it's an exception, not the rule. I've I've come across uh, something like what you're talking about um, because I've taught in philosophy departments mainly. And every once in a while, the philosophy department at a school, a public school, a government school, is tasked with uh, teaching religion, as they call it. And yeah. then it's a, it's very interesting how things get divvied up in the courses that are designed. But um, this particular school I have in mind, uh, Moorpark College in California, so this community college, uh, had... Uh, courses on, um, I believe, biblical studies, um, and I've I've heard of similar courses at other community colleges, and they're taught it oftentimes in the philosophy mm -hmm. department, and um, and uh, it's 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 odd how they go about figuring out who teaches those classes and how they're taught. But there is, um, in fact, uh, at the, the particular uh, ones I have experience with, I know for a fact that I was the most qualified person to teach mm -hmm. the course because nobody else had a, a master's degree in biblical studies like I did. Right. In, in addition to um, the other training I had in philosophy and uh the the faculty at some of these schools um wouldn't let me touch that with a 10-foot pole <laughs> and and there was no reason ever given there's never a discussion about it uh so right. you only can guess but i feel like you know once you get a sense of what's going on at a campus you're probably doing more than guessing you're just paying attention but but that's interesting uh, now going to the historical reliability of the gospels some people don't know that we don't have the original autographs or some people do know that we don't have the original copies of the bible right. and um i remember when i first i don't remember exactly how old i was but i was when i first realized that i i I was bothered that we don't talk about it in church. I never heard any discussions ever in church about where we get the Bible, exactly what copies we have. How do we know this is accurate? I, I didn't hear anything about that. And it didn't matter which church I was at. I didn't hear anything about it. And I, I think the fact that we don't hear anything about it at lots of churches, uh, can lead some young people to wonder if uh, there's an agenda to hide something, or Very there's true. just a lack of there's a lack of an a, a ability to deal with 
something that's true that's very scary. Right. So how do you uh how do you feel about that and how do you handle that? Well, in I don't your, know if it works any faith. better on, on my camera than on yours, but uh, you will quickly recognize when I hold up the the book, the Greek New Testament, that's published by uh, yeah. the United Bible Societies. It's the, we're now up to the fifth revised edition. I don't think you got quite that high with the, the numbers when, when you were a student, not that there are huge differences, but uh, on any page, if I open it randomly, um, much like uh, yes. books in uh, technical English, there's the text, That's and then Greek. sometimes the footnotes take up more space than the uh, text yes. itself. Um, if you manage to learn even just enough uh, Greek uh, to use the tools written by people in English uh, who can uh, decipher what I sometimes call the chicken scratches, on pages like this, um, while it's an exaggeration, I, I I really like what Dan Wallace at Dallas Seminary, who's probably American evangelicalism's leading textual critic and has been for quite a few years now, uh, he likes to uh, he likes to hold up a Greek New Testament and say, "Well, we have so many thousands of manuscripts." And people have combed through them so carefully and uh, determined dates and relationships and uh, families of similar copies um, that uh, actually we almost do have the original manuscripts. And we have them right here. The only problem is we don't always know if it's in the text or in the footnote. But um, very rarely would uh, the original ever be other than, uh, than one of those, if ever. Um, and so, yes, if we had only a handful of copies of uh, books of scripture, the books of the New Testament in uh, ancient Greek, if we had um, copies, but there were wild divergences among them, then uh, there'd be a problem. But neither of those are true. Um, the really interesting differences, uh, I can now pick a plain covered English Bible, uh, well, fortunately, here it's almost all text and just tiny footnotes down at the bottom, uh, two or three on a page, if that. Um, but an average modern translation of scripture, even just in the New Testament, will probably still have between four, five, six hundred uh, footnotes that show the the only really significant variants and uh, whether or not I've ever learned a lick of Greek or even how to use the reference tools that understand it, I can see for myself that 
the vast majority of those are very trivial and and those are the less than one percent of the most significant ones and when there are interesting differences then i can find a commentary or a Bible dictionary, encyclopedia, if I want to, or uh, in today's world, Google uh, the question and get all kinds of information. A lot of it does depend on how curious you are and how willing you are to, to dig a little bit deeper. The, the issue of the copies that we have matching the original, that doesn't bother you. That, 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 the feeling is that the way scholarship is about the ancient world, we don't have autographs, uh, copies of anything, right? Correct. And that's a reductio ad absurdum. Much, much closer to the originals with New Testament documents than for anything else. Why is that? Because there's so many copies. Because there's so many. Because uh, Um, there's no other uh, institution or... um, society of any kind that grew up um, worshipping the characters in the Iliad and the Odyssey, which is the closest thing you can find in the Greek world. There actually are a couple thousand ancient copies of Homer's two most famous books because they were used uh, in Greek elementary education as a kind of um, foundational epic narrative from which many lessons for living could be taught. Um, When you put Homer to one side, I'm not aware that there's any other ancient works that we have more than a couple hundred copies of, a few of the Roman histories. And very quickly, you're down into uh, double digits, and in most instances, single digits of the copies we have of ancient books. And you put that against 5,700 or so Greek manuscripts and another 20,000 in other ancient languages that it was translated into, and that's a staggering difference. Yeah. Well, and there's uh, the issue of books that we don't have any of we don't have any copies at all we know that they're referenced like some some of aristotle for example there's books that are referenced in the bible that we don't have copies of the uh, typical ancient historian that we do uh, have will routinely refer to older sources that the writer relied on and in a majority of instances, those books have vanished. It would be cool to have some kind of great big archaeological discovery of something like the Library of Alexandria, Alexandria, yeah, or something like that. You know, something that was under our nose the whole time. Some of these lost books that would be great. If you uh, could. Uh, Tell us, um, you have to have some idea of the most compelling argument for the historical reliability of the Gospels. I mean, I don't want to put 
words in your mouth and you're going to take them right out if they don't fit <laughs> anyway. So, so, uh, but, um, after doing this, I think you said 37 years teaching mm -hmm. and that's just teaching, not even the right. whole thing, the whole studying everything. Uh, what would that be? I have given two very different answers to that question when I've been asked and I was just thinking about it the other day and I think from now on I'm going to um, hope that boiling things down to two is good enough if uh, Jesus could summarize the greatest commandment with two and not one um, because they're very different on the one hand um, the amount of evidence whether it is archaeological corroboration, whether it is um, other ancient literature that impinges on what uh, a portion of scripture talks about, whether it's names of people and places or just the, the verisimilitude and lifelikeness of everything in a world which did not have as a known literary genre, what today we have invented and call a docudrama, where you try to have lots of details that are historically accurate and then make up fic fictional parts of a, of a storyline and, and intersperse them. So <clears throat> we don't know when we watch The West Wing what. Uh, corresponds to nothing that's ever happened in the White House, but seems plausible. That just didn't exist in the ancient world. There were generic indicators, not least of which was the introduction to a book, um, but also features scattered through. Um, if you were writing fiction, you deliberately used historical anachronisms. You put Nebuchadnezzar as the head of the Assyrians rather than the Babylonians, and you had him fighting the Jews in the 2nd century B.C. rather than the 6th century B.C., and that's what you find, for example, in the uh, Old Testament apocryphal book of Judith. Um, so uh, when you put together the cumulative case for um, the plausibility and probability of all of the historical events um, throughout Scripture, it, it just far surpasses that that we have available, not just for any other ancient book of history, but for any other ancient book of religion. Um, but then a very different kind of answer I remember in the very first edition of Josh McDowell's evidence, it demands a verdict uh, being struck by this. And uh, if any of our listeners are familiar with that work, uh, Josh with his son, Sean, uh, have done an amazing third edition that's uh, three times as detailed and helpful as the original was. Um, there is the impact for the good on transformed lives that you can draw an 
unbroken line from the early first century through 2023. And this is not to say there have not been Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists that have done wonderful things for humanity. There have been. Uh, that, that would be a, a terrible distortion. But if you just look at how disproportionately Christians have been behind various moves for the emancipation of slaves, for the feeding of the poor, for the uh, housing of the homeless, for humanitarian aid and disaster relief, for um, education for the disenfranchised, including uh, women and girls trapped in religions that don't value them as much as they do their boys. Uh, and, and the list just goes on. The foundations of modern medicine and modern science. Um, and yes, especially some key Jews and Muslims have also fueled these because they are also monotheists and believe there is one orderly God in charge of everything. You don't find any of that in, in Hinduism that just does not have the same value uh, for human life across all of the different castes. Um, but where in today's world do you find Allah revealing himself apart from any human testimony to irreligious people or to Christians so that they are transformed and becoming Muslims? You just don't. But there are thousands upon thousands of Muslim background Christian believers from this country to the underground church in Iran and countless other places who had no access to a written or spoken form of the gospel. And Jesus or an angel of the Lord directly appeared to them which is why they are Christians to this day um, and transformed lives despite persecution. In some cases, they've been martyred. Um, you can find single exceptions to everything I just said, but when you put it together cumulatively, um, transformed lives for the good I think is, is one of the greatest testimonies throughout Christianity. And it's tragic that what we call news is skewed with a focus on the tiny fraction of people out of that who do bizarre things that give the faith a bad name. Well, I really enjoyed your your courses there at Denver Seminary. I, I remember the first semester, Jesus and the Gospels and Acts, and then Epistles and Romans, and uh, and on and on. And um, the lo the older I get, the more I look back at that as, as just fundamental and key for everything I'm doing 
and I, I've tried to do after. Um, and I'm so glad I did it in that order. I'm so glad I got the biblical training first because um, so many things that seem to, well, it's just been a good foundation, I guess. Um, it, I haven't been rocked by the same kinds of, I mean, not that I, not that I don't have problems, but I, but I haven't had uh, the challenges of wondering the kind of things I used grow grew up wondering that no one had answers to. I finally got a, a handle on the answers, even if I don't know everything. I know where I can poke around in, and I trust that there's a lot there that I don't understand, but I could learn if I had the curiosity. And I wanted to thank you for all that you've done there at Denver Seminary and that you continue to do. Well, you're certainly very welcome. And I want to return the, the favor and say I know a little bit about what you've persevered with in adjuncting countless courses and places when somebody should have hired you full time. And uh, I know that the world of philosophy is is perhaps, uh, at least I've heard repeatedly, it has the biggest glut of trained uh, people of any of the university disciplines. And then, as we've talked about, the the unfortunate biases that you can find at different places on top of that. And you could have given up a long time ago, and I have no doubt that you have, for the good, affected a whole bunch of students. So keep at it. Thank you. I appreciate the the challenge you gave me too when I was working on my thesis for you. Uh, <laughs> when when I was sitting in your office there at Denver Seminary, the old campus, over down just down the street from University yep. of Denver on University Boulevard, uh, and I don't have any pictures of that campus. It makes me sad because it was before iPhones. I didn't have I didn't carry a camera mm. around with me. I don't have any pictures of Vernon grounds or, or you, or, you know, I, I just, I don't have no, it's like, it doesn't exist the record it just separate in my mind, which is you know, still there for the most part. But I remember sitting there telling you, I was thinking about moving to California to, and to finish my, my degree there. <laughs> and you said, you said you won't finish. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Just just that bluntly and uh no sugarcoating it, nothing like that. And I thought, oh. Um, so I I worked hard to prove you wrong and it, it took a while, but I finally Good. Good. finally got it. Reverse done. psychology. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, Craig, for being on. Thank Appreciate you. It. Okay. I'm gonna stop recording now. Oh, 